You should have received in your bulletin this morning a, a, a little handout here, and this is not necessarily for today's message. This is basically just something uh, for you to keep in your Bible kind of as a reference uh, as we study uh, through the book of Revelation, and it may be something you want to study a little bit at home or just look over or just have handy kind of as a reference, and that's all that that really is, just something to help you out, and so use it to the benefit Use it for your benefit however, uh, however you can. Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation as we begin our study. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill once described the former Soviet Union, he said, as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. That's the way he described the old Soviet Union. And I think a lot of people, when they look at or consider the book of Revelation, they may have a similar thought. How can anyone understand this difficult book? You start reading through it, it doesn't seem so difficult at first, and you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, but then after that it kind of really gets difficult. And you say, what on earth is this about? And so it's kind of hard. Its contents are certainly... Uh, something that require extra care to understand, extra concern, extra thought. There is no doubt about that. W.A. Criswell, the longtime pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, served there for 50 years. And during that time there, he preached through the entire Bible, all the books of the Bible. But as he got ready to preach through the book of Revelation, he took a six-month sabbatical from the church in order to devote a lot of extra time just to the preparation to preach through the book of Revelation. It just kind of shows uh, the seriousness with which he took it and the level of difficulty that it often takes to thoroughly understand this book. Why study Revelation? I mean, some pastors and some teachers' approach to the Bible is, is that we need to just focus on the here and now. God's concerned with what we're doing right here today. And all those other things are going to take care of themselves. All of those other areas are going to unfold the way that God intended anyway, whether we understand them or not. Maybe you've thought that yourself. I've thought that at times. I thought, well, you know, if I don't quite understand this, it's okay. But, you know, God gave it to us for a reason, right? And we need to understand it. First reason that we need to study the book of Revelation is this. Revelation is the only book in all the Bible for which God pronounces a beatitude for those who will read it, those who will study it. We see in chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. Blessed means happy. Blessed means uh, that God is content with us in what we're doing if we will read and we will study and we will hear the words of this prophecy. Number two, second reason we should study the book of Revelation. Many have abused prophecy and things associated with end times and the future. We need to know the truth so we will not fall prey to false teaching. And there's a lot of it out there today. Number three, the promise of the Lord's return needs to be emphasized and it needs to be celebrated in this world that is moving further and further away from biblical morality. 
And the things that are emphasized here, the promise of, of the Lord's return, are something that needs to encourage the church. Number four, the church needs to be assured that Christ is victorious and He accomplishes all that He sets out to do. And number five, the fifth reason we should study the book of Revelation, God saw fit to give us this information in His Word. Therefore, that fact alone ought to cause us to take heed. The very fact that God, in all the things He could have said, all the things He could have revealed, saw fit to give us this book here, then we know already that it is important and that there is a key message for all believers therein. There are four major approaches to this book. I'm going to give these to you just quickly, and we probably won't refer to these terms ever again, but I just want you to know uh, what they are and, and how that many approach this, because as I stand here now, some of you have different study Bibles, and, and you're going to say at points, well, you know, what, what you're saying may be a little bit different than what's being said in my study Bible, or if you go home and you look in a commentary and you see that, well, this guy seems to say something completely different. I just want you to understand that there are four major approaches to uh, uh, understanding the book of Revelation. Number one is, is what's called preterist. And it's basically a view that interprets Revelation mainly as a description of things that happened in the first century. In other words, John is writing here in the first century A.D. And uh, the things that, that Revelation talks about, they would say, just apply to that, that audience, the people that are alive right then and there. There's what's called the historicist or historical view. And it basically looks at Revelation in terms of the big picture um, kind of played out through church history. In other words, they would look at, at popes down through church history or church councils or they would look at key people, key figures in history like maybe Hitler or uh, Genghis Khan or you know, Stalin or somebody like that. And they would put a lot of significance on that. And they would see, well, you know, Revelation at various points is talking about those people or about these events. So that's the historicist viewpoint. There's what's called the idealist. It's, it's, an, it's a way of interpreting Revelation uh, which says it's primarily a, a timeless depiction of good versus evil. And it's not to be taken too literally. It's meant to be taken more figurative and its stories are just kind of meant to convey truth to us. And we don't need to get bogged down in those details. Then the fourth one is what's called the futurist the futurist. And it interprets Revelation primarily as telling of events yet to take place, particularly chapters 4 through 22. Now, this view says that these chapters, both literally and symbolically, reveal actual people and events yet to exist and occur. Now, I can tell you right now, the approach that I think is best, the one that I'll be taking as we stutter, study this, is the futurist viewpoint. That the, most of what is in Revelation, uh, chapters 4 through 22, is yet to occur in time. Now, God's overriding purpose in history is the establishment of the promised messianic kingdom. And so we need to understand Revelation within the context of all of Scripture. 
It's not just a book way out here somewhere by itself, but it needs to be studied and it needs to be understood within the context of all of God's Word. Now, the book of Revelation was written most likely around A.D. or A.D. 95 or 96, near the end of the reign of Roman Emperor Domitian, who reigned from 80 to 100 A.D. And he intensified persecution against Christians in that region of the world. Now, it was written by John, who was also an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. John also wrote the Gospel of John in our New Testament, as well as the letters or epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John's stand for the Word of God and his bold testimony for Christ, according to chapter 1 and verse 9, led him to be uh, exiled to a small island called Patmos, located about 60 miles southwest of, of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. Now, the title of the book, Revelation, means an uncovering. It means an unveiling. It means a disclosure of that which was previously hidden. It's a revealing. Many have become bogged down and lost in the details of this book to the extent that they have lost sight of keeping the big picture in mind. And that is the big picture of what God is ultimately revealing, what He's ultimately doing. And we need to avoid that danger. The details are important, we know that, because God saw fit to include them. But at the same time, we don't need to get bogged down to the point that we act like every detail is, is somehow um, not able to be exhausted in its meaning. It's kind of like how we would study the parables that Jesus gave uh, as recorded in the Gospels. If you make too much significance of every tiny little detail in a parable, you're going to get very confused. With a parable, Jesus was trying to convey one central meaning or illustrate one central point. And in many ways, Revelation has to be studied that way, that there is a point to this chapter, there is a point to this section or even down to this verse or grouping of verses, rather than saying that there is um, an unlimited way uh, or an unlimited amount of depth that we could go into. Now, the implied purpose is this, according to Riken's Bible Handbook, and I think he has a good statement here about this. The implied purpose is to inform all believers beginning in the first century A.D., regarding the events that must soon take place. That is, in the latter days that began with the coming of Jesus in His incarnation. Apocalyptic literature is a particular genre of Scripture or a type of Scripture. It comes from the Greek word uh, apocalypsis, and it basically is translated revelation. That's where we get the the title of the book from, is from the Greek word apocalypsis. And we hear about things that are apocalyptic, you know, things that are uh, in regards to the future. Other genres of Scripture uh, include law. We know the first five books of the Bible are law. We have historical books. There's book, there are books of poetry, books of, of, of uh, narrative. There are, there are parables that are, make up part of our Scripture. Uh, letter or epistle. But to properly interpret any type of Scripture, whether it be law or whether it be parables or whether it be history or whatever, we've got to study that and approach it 
from the standpoint of keeping in mind kind of the rules that govern understanding that type of literature. And so when we approach apocalyptic literature, we've got to understand the rich symbolism. Uh, We've got to understand that this is primarily an unveiling of future events. Now, other portions of apocalyptic literature in the Bible besides Revelation include Jesus uh, speaking in Matthew chapter 24, uh, Luke chapter 21, Mark chapter 13, uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament chapters 7 through 12, and most of the book of Zechariah. And then there are even some of the other places like in Isaiah, he even has some apocalyptic type literature. Donald W. Richardson, in his book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, writes, Apocalyptic writings are characterized by the use of symbols and highly figurative language. In this type of literature, an empire was symbolized by a wild beast. Men were spoken of under the figure of animals. Symbolic writing does not paint pictures. He says the skull and the crossbones on the bottle of medicine is a symbol of poison and not a picture of it. The fish and the lamb, the lion, are all symbols of Christ, but never to be taken as pictures of Him. The book of Revelation, the book of Revelation has very few pictures, but it is full of symbols. Just something else to keep in mind as we studied. It has been pointed out that because many symbols are used throughout the book of Revelation, we must remember to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. We must keep in mind, as we consider the words of Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, that no Scripture is a private interpretation. No prophecy. It is all intended for everyone to look at and see, in essence, the same thing, because it's all going to happen the way that God intended. Now, when studying Revelation, we need to keep some very important things in mind. Through every chapter of this book, through every verse of this book, I want us to remember three things. Number one, God does not change. God simply does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always the same, whether it be before even the earth was formed going back prior to the events recorded in Genesis, literally in eternity past, all the way up to our present right here in time, all the way to eternity future, an incomparable uh, amount of time beyond today. He's the same. Second thing I want us to remember is that Satan does not change. Satan's evil character has been the same always. He has always been rebellious. He has always sought to destroy. He has always been a liar. He has always tried to tear down what God is in process of building up. He does not change. His character is the same. The third thing is, is that the nature of mankind does not change. Once it it did change in the Garden of Eden... It will remain the same until we receive glorified bodies in the new heaven and the new earth that Revelation talks about. The character of man has been the same. It's been sinful. Mankind has had a propensity towards 
sin and wants more sin rather than less of it. So keep in mind that whatever the Bible has said about God, it's still saying about God. Whatever the Bible has said previously about Satan, it's still saying because Satan is still Satan. And mankind, whatever the Bible has said all along about mankind's sinfulness, the Bible is still saying about that through Revelation up until the Lord returns and all things are different. But mankind is the same, has been the same all throughout all of history. Now, using the rest of the Bible to help understand Revelation is extremely important. Ray Steadman writes, If you try and read Revelation without any understanding of the rest of the Bible, you are doomed to confusion. But if you use the rest of the Bible as a guide and interpreter of the symbols of Revelation, most of these symbols immediately become understandable. Even though the Bible was written down over a period of about 1,500 years, there is complete unity within its pages. Stedman goes on to say, the, books, the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation are like two bookends that hold the entire Bible together. In Genesis, we have the story of the origin of human sin. In Revelation, we have the complete and final victory over sin. Genesis presents the beginning of human history and civilization. Revelation presents the end of both. In Genesis, we learn the beginning of God's judgment and His grace toward mankind. In Revelation, we see the awesome result of His judgment and the triumph of His grace. The great themes of those two books are intricately intertwined. John MacArthur writes, The book of Revelation contains truths that had been concealed, but now have been revealed. Though it nowhere directly quotes the Old Testament, 278 of its 404 verses refer or allude to the Old Testament prophetic truth. And it amplifies what was only initially suggested in the Old Testament. And so there, there's a, a tremendous amount of unity with, with, between this book and the, not only the rest of the Bible, but the Old Testament. And there's really more, more prophecy outside of the book of Revelation in the Old Testament than there actually is in the New Testament. You get maybe a chapter here and there, really, uh, when you come right down to it. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 are, are basically each of those gospel writers' account of the very same thing. It's what's called Jesus's great eschatological discourse, in other words, dealing with final things. And so really that's just kind of one thing, just as recorded by three different gospel writers. And you have a few verses here and there. I mean, Paul at times uh, said some things that were kind of related to end times, as he wrote, speaking of the rapture of the church to the Thessalonians, for instance. Uh, but most of what you have as far as prophecy outside of the book of Revelation comes from places like Daniel 7 through 12, the book of Zechariah and other isolated passages in Isaiah and, and elsewhere. Now, as we come now to the book, let's, I invite you to take your Bibles and let's stand as we read verses 1 through 3 of this book. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants 
things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signaled it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Let us pray. Father, as we come to the text of this scripture, we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and open our minds, not only today, but beginning today and throughout our study. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the unfolding of your plans as the time draws nearer and nearer. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, be seated, please. The first thing we see here is in verse 1, and we see the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Christ means that it comes from Christ and it is about Christ. It comes from Him and it's a description of Himself. He is the subject of the entire book. Sometimes it's hard in in this book to come up with an overall theme. What is the theme of the book? Christ is the theme of the book in one word. And if you want to expand that a little bit, it's about Christ's victory over everything. Over sin, over death, over Satan, over the world and its system. Christ's final victory over all. This revelation is given to His servants. Servants are believers, followers, Christians. That's who the book is given to. This unveiling given to Christians tells them of things that must shortly or soon come to pass or take place. Now there seems to be an alluding here to the prophet Daniel's explaining or unveiling King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. We read there, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed, about what would come to pass after this. He who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The king is certain and the or the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. We may read verse one here in Revelation. And come to the idea that shortly or quickly meant when John wrote this, that like in a month, in a week, in a year, these things are going to come to pass. In fact, that has confused many people. But the reason it primarily confuses us, perhaps, is because of how we understand time. Time is more or less irrelevant to God, especially as compared with how it is it, it is uh, is highly relevant to us. Everything in our world uh, revolves around time. 
But it didn't with God, and it certainly didn't in the ancient world. They weren't concerned uh, so much with minutes and seconds and days and that kind of thing. Why is the Lord still not come, though? Why is it that the Lord's return has lingered as long as it has? Especially when we look at all the prophecies throughout Scripture and we say, look how bad the world is getting. Look how amoral people are. They just don't have uh, morals anymore. Things aren't like they used to be. And we might look and say, where is the promise of His coming? Well, Jesus even predicted that many would say and, and ask rhetorically, well, where is the promise of His coming? He's coming, where is He? Think about it this way when we think of time, though. We may say to someone, well, you know, give me a minute or wait a minute. And what do we really mean when we say that? Well, we don't mean a literal minute and we don't hit a stopwatch on our watch and literally give them 60 seconds and then start again. What that means translated is give me a little while or I'll be there in a little while. That's what give me a minute means. Or we may say, give me a second, and that doesn't mean a literal second. That means a shorter period of time. And so when you think about God being eternal, you think about God not having a beginning or an end, that's a long time. That's an incomprehensible amount of time. That's a, that's a concept that we can't wrap our finite minds around. And so when John here writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, in a little while, or things that must shortly come to pass, indeed it is short to an eternal God. Whether it be 2,000 years as we measure time, or whether it be 5,000 years, or whatever it ends up being until the Lord's return. I mean, if you live to be a thousand years old, we have the example of Methuselah in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, who was said to have lived 969 years. How long would have a 20-year period been in the life of a person over 900 years old? It would not have seemed very long. And so you get the idea the longer you live, many of you know this, as you get older, it's something that happened 10 years ago, seems like it was yesterday. The older we get, the longer we exist, time looks different. But when we're younger, a year seems like it takes forever to roll around. We're talking about an eternal God here who had no beginning. And so 2,000 years is nothing. In fact, we're even told in Scripture, in Second Peter chapter 3, that time does not mean anything to God like it does to us because, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. God is not concerned with clocks. God is concerned with times. God is concerned with the times. We read in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, But in the fullness of God's time He sent forth His Son. In other words, it had more to do with the conditions in the world at that time being right and being as God had planned, much more than it had to do with, okay, I have had this date circled on my calendar for a long time. Now I'm going to send my son. Christ's second return, His second coming, 
is not a date that God has circled in His calendar. Although it may be a date, it will be a date probably, as we as human beings measure time. But looking at it from God's perspective, it has nothing to do with what year it is, or what month it is, or what day it is. It has to do with the times, or it has to do with the conditions of things. When John wrote of that which shortly must take place, he was alerting the reader to the fixed and eternal promise of God's truth and to the certainty of the events spoke of in this book. It wasn't about time, it was about certainty. All of these things were communicated by his angel or his messenger. The word angel or angels is used 71 times in this book, more than any other book of the Bible. In fact, 25% of, of the total references to an angel or angels in all of the Bible is right here in this book. One-fourth of all the references of all in the Bible are right here in the book of Revelation. When we think of prophecy, we think of something which was previously unknown, but now has been made known. Commentator John P. Newport writes, Prophecy is like a lamp shining in a dark place. The ancient lamp was a small clay vessel which one could hold in one's hand. The lighted vessel would show a person how to find his way down a dark path or a dark street, but would not illumine the distant horizon in detail. This verse indicates that the primary purpose of prophecy is to shed light on the present from the future so that God's people may know how to find their way through a rough and dark world. Wise words indeed. Reminiscent of Psalm 119.105 where the psalmist writes there, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Next we see... Our second point here, the witness of Jesus Christ in verse 2. The witness of Jesus Christ. The whole reason John was exiled to the island of Patmos was because of the fact that he bore witness to the word of God and his testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Not merely limited to just this book, although it primarily in this context is talking about the book of Revelation, but the book of Revelation was also building upon what John already knew as be, after being a disciple of the Lord Jesus and after pinning the words of, of the Gospel of John, the Gospel account, and also the letters of First, Second, and Third John. So John had all this in mind. He had, he had so much full. His mind was full. His heart was full. And he couldn't stop preaching. He simply was out there proclaiming on a daily basis the Word of God and Domitian didn't like that. He was causing unrest. He was causing an upheaval, turmoil in the kingdom. He was a nuisance. He was an irritant to that Roman emperor having his way and having control. He saw him as a threat. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, was told that uh, he must stop preaching or face being imprisoned. Well, he wouldn't stop preaching. And he was imprisoned. And he was told repeatedly, if you'll stop preaching, if you'll promise to not preach anymore, we'll let you out of prison. 
But he wouldn't make that promise. And he stayed in prison. He stayed in jail. And while there, he wrote the book, Pilgrim's Progress. is probably uh, the most famous book uh, of the last five or six hundred years beyond the Bible. Amazing. When he mentions the Word of God, John is bearing witness about his personal encounter with the coming glory of Jesus Christ, which will be given to his church, according to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. And notice finally our third point. We see from verse 3, the blessing from Jesus Christ. The blessing from Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we have a beatitude. The word beatitude means beautiful attitude. It's reminiscent here of Matthew chapter 5, uh, the classic giving of Jesus' beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. Uh, those kind of things. Each begins with the word blessed or happy as a synonymous term for blessed. Verse 3 is the first of seven beatitudes that are given in the book of Revelation. There's, there's one in chapter 14, one in 16, one in 19, one in chapter, actually two in chapter 20, and then in chapter 22. This is also the first of seven groupings together of seven items throughout the book, which is, which is very interesting. All throughout Scripture, the number seven is a number of completeness. God's number is said to be seven. And so there's seven groupings of seven things in this book. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. And that just shows you the overall unity of this book. I mean, how could John have made this stuff up? You know, if he was high on drugs or something, he couldn't have come up with this. No, it came from the Lord. This came from the Holy Spirit of God who spoke to him and he wrote down the things that he saw. The number of man is the number six. Six falls short of God. It falls short of the number seven. It's one less. It falls short of God. And when we get to where we study about the mark of the beast or the number of man, the number uh, of man threefold, sort of like uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the unholy trinity, the number three is significant in that it's the number of man threefold, 666. So numbers are actually more important in our study of Revelation than they often are in other parts of the Bible. They are symbolic. They have meaning. They represent something. Now, the specific blessing in chapter 1 and verse 3 is given to those who read and obey it. Also to those who keep or hold these things that are testified about by John. The last phrase, for the time is near, conveys a tremendous sense of urgency. For all of time, the admonition of God's people is to live for Christ in light of God's truth because indeed the time is near. The book is timeless and it has had unmistakable application to every generation of believers from the early church up until whoever will ultimately be the last generation of Christians that live upon the earth, whether that's us or whether it's the next generation or a generation a long time from now. 
Commentator Richard Brooks writes, All things will and must lead to the final manifestation of Christ in all of His glory. Just a final thought for this introduction to the book of Revelation comes from Robert Mounts. History is not a haphazard sequence of unrelated events, but a divinely decreed ordering of that which must take place. It is a logical and moral necessity arising from the nature of God and the revelation of His purpose in creation and in redemption. The urgency conveyed in this opening greeting here of chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, is a call for the church to take heed and to listen. And for those who are lost and outside of the church to come and be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a call for all of us to get our spiritual house in order. Why? Because the time is near. I ask you this morning, with urgency, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Let's pray together. Father, as we bow our hearts before you this morning, we thank you for allowing us to come to this study. Thank you for the insights that you offer us. Thank you for the ways that you reveal your truth to our hearts. Father, we pray that you'd continue to do that. We need your help to understand a difficult book like Revelation. We can read through it and we can read through it again and again and still not understand it, it seems. That's why we need the Holy Spirit's help to help reveal your truth to us. Father... We see the urgency conveyed here by John. And how much more urgent. Lord, your word says uh, that even as we see the day approaching, we need more urgency. We're also told in the book of Romans to do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believe. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the wicked works of darkness, and put on the garments of light. Father, we pray today that we would indeed be ready, that we would be diligent as we await your return. Let us be hardworking, doing all we can for the kingdom. Father, this world is passing away it's like a speeding train or a bus or a car is zooming by us. That's this world. And it's headed for a cliff that it doesn't even know is there. And Father, the day is going to come and it may be very quickly that, the, that your church is going to be taken out of here, snatched away, caught away. And we need to be ready. And Father, as we study, we pray that you'd instill in each one of us a sense of great urgency. Not only for us to get our own lives right, but to boldly proclaim to our friends and neighbors and family members the need to get their life right with you and get their spiritual houses in order. Father, there may be someone here today who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. And if the rapture were to take place today, 
they would miss. The church would go and be caught up in the clouds of the sky, as the Bible says. But they would be left here because they don't know you as their Savior. Father, we're told that there's great urgency. And Father, we see daily the unfolding of so many schemes of men. We need you, Lord, now more than ever. Father, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, draw them unto yourself, we pray, by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit. Maybe there's some here who needs to say, I, who would say, I need to be a part of the church. I need to come and unite together with it. Serve God here in this place, in this community. Maybe others would say, I need to come and just do business with God. I need to pray and I need to pour out my heart to Him. And help ask Him to help instill urgency within me. Lord, You know the needs in every heart right now. We ask that You'd work and move in our midst. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand together this morning and sing, won't you come? Come as we sing.